0: Let's just repeat those words for some goosebumps for the listeners and watchers. So, instant, roaring, massive, electrified torque. That's it. You that sounds very least. good. <laughs> that sounds like Koenigsegg in a nutshell. Welcome to my Beyond Victory podcast. And today I'm honored because we have a very special guest and it's Christian von Königsegg who has really revolutionized the hypercar market. I mean, phenomenal job out of Sweden, built his own car company. And I think it's going to be incredible to listen to his insights. Hello, Christian. Hi, Nico. Good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. It should be fun. We're, uh, we're catching you in the headquarters or at home?
1: Yeah. No, this is uh, in our HQ in my, in my office. So... Okay. Yeah, and you, you're at home or?
0: So I'm in, uh, I'm in my office in Monaco. Yeah. Oh,
1: okay. Cool. Yeah.
0: We're like in a lucky, lucky little bubble here where it's not as bad as everywhere else. So right. we can move around and have lunches and things like that. It's, it's still That's manageable. Nice.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, we are uh, kind of, I guess, similar to rest of Europe, but we're trying to uh, work as much as we can. It's difficult to build cars at home. So <laughs> So That's, we're we're trying to be careful and uh and doing the best, you know. And yeah, it's kind of okay. Hopefully this thing will yeah, get better soon. Yeah. yeah. The vaccines coming out, so.
0: Yeah. Okay. If it's okay then uh if it's alright for you we'll jump right into it. Sure. Yeah. So before starting, I want to share a small story with everybody who's listening and watching where I first met you and this was Geneva Motor Show in 2018 and I will be honest that I, of course I knew Koenigsegg, but I didn't really, I didn't understand like why, uh, why are people so hyped about it? What, I mean, what's so cool about this? And, and if you compare it to a, like a Ferrari or whatever, I was like, okay, why, why Koenigsegg? And then I met you on the stand and, um, you, you came and it was the, it was the Carbon Aguera or Regera, I'm not sure, uh, one of eight, one of eight. And you opened, uh, you opened the back end of it completely And then you arrived and you took the time kindly, like for five minutes to explain to me. And I got goosebumps because, uh, and it doesn't happen to me very often, but I got goosebumps by your passion and by your unbelievable talent for details. Like it was not a car. It was a piece of art. (laughs) And so when I walked away from there, everything changed in my mind and I 100% understood why Koenig is successful. So this was my my first and only uh, meeting so far with you and it really... uh, it really uh, had quite an impact.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear. I mean, that, that is what we strive for. We put so much uh, passion, energy and time into every little molecule and every little function of our cars. And sometimes, you know, you don't know if it will go by unnoticed, but at the same time, I believe that is what has given us the right to exist in this very tough market that uh, we try to leave nothing at chance and really it put our best effort in, into every aspect. I mean, the, the, the idea is a little bit, uh, it should look kind of as hopefully amazing on the outside and so on. But when you open up and start taking things apart, you find pleasant surprises as you dig in, that it's actually nicer and more exciting on the inside than on the outside and preferably underneath something hidden that you wouldn't expect you would find even. So that is kind of the the ambition. But But of course, having said all of that, it's... Performance and experience and, and how it is to drive is, is, of course, overshadowing this as well. But it's it's a having it all kind of experience, I would say. That is yeah, our objective.
0: Yeah, well, I can confirm that when I once I looked underneath the bonnet, it was absolutely phenomenal. So I can I can uh, it, that it's it's those details where when you go deep and it really shows how much uh, a company cares, you know, also for the product. Sure. And this is yeah. your greatest excellence is how much you care for every single detail, even if it's something that. Maybe even the customer won't always see, but exactly. it's there.
1: Exactly. I mean, the, the the ethos of the company has always been every little money we make, we kind of throw back into the cars because that is our best investment. And that's what we've been doing for over 20 years. So,
0: Very impressive. But can I come back then to the birth of this passion in, uh, of yours? Do you remember moments in your life where suddenly it like clicked and you said, wow, well, I have this passion for engineering detail and cars? Was there a specific moment? Oh, yes. Uh, well... At least there's a first memory and
1: and uh, I I, you, I mean, I get the question a lot, of course. So how come uh, you build cars and how does this interest start? Like like your question now. And and I, I used to answer, well, you know, I have a great interest in cars. I love cars. And, and then the comeback is always, yeah, but a lot of people have that. True. So then I started thinking about the first memory I ever had about wanting to build a car. And it was when I was like six, seven years old, I went to the cinema with my father. And there was this Norwegian uh, puppet movie called Pinchcliffe Grand Prix. I don't know if you've seen it or not, yeah. but it's an amazing story about a bicycle repairman who lives on a small mountaintop in Norway. And he's kind of an inventor guy, and, and he wants to build a kind of a Le Mans-style racer car uh, with his uh, well helpers up there in his bike bicycle shop. And he creates this crazy monster of a car not according to any rule book, I would say, but it it has like a twelve liter engine in the front and a rocket engine in the rear and radars and all weird kind of things and it's all hand built in a funky way, and then of course he goes to race and and he races against the kind of famous brands of normal kind of Le Mans cars and of course he wins and I remember walking out of that uh, that film and apparently my father told me afterwards as well that. I said, that's what I want to do when I grow up. I want to be that bicycle repairman. I want to build this crazy car that beats everything. (laughs) And ever since, you know, I've been doodling cars and uh, all the the pocket money I got, I bought car magazines and I kind of studied them like this, very, very close to look at the details. Why is that screw there? Why is that door handle like that? Why, Why are the wing mirrors different? That rubber seal looks different on this car than that car. Because that's how I thought I would learn how to build cars by reading car magazines. I mean, that's not the normal way of doing it, of course. You go to school or university or something. But I thought I can absorb what everyone else did and try to figure out why they did it a certain way. So I could figure out how I would do it my way. And you can call that crazy approach for whatever you want. But I think it actually kind of set the tone and the mindset for how we operate. It's like first, of course, checking what what others are doing, but then coming up with our own way of doing it that, we hope and, and believe, and, and sometimes it's maybe better, you know. So th- that is, I think, the story in a, in a nutshell. And I, I never lost the passion over the years. I always had it in, in the back of my mind. So as soon as I, uh, yeah, could get out of school, I started my first company when I was 19 with the ambition of trying to make some money so I could start a car company. So I had some invention ideas. I, I, I mean, I, I like technical things in general, but cars especially. So I have some technical ideas. I thought I could maybe patent and make some money off easier than cars. So I could use that money to build cars. If you've seen this uh, click, wooden click floor, my now wife, who was my girlfriend back then, her father was in the wooden floor industry. And I said, there must be some better way of putting these planks together. So I came up with this click floor idea. I did some patent research. He he kind of didn't think it was such an amazing idea. And then I left it at the wayside, but that became later on a, a world standard for for putting flooring tiles together, so that's pretty cool. But but yeah, uh, I, I did some trading, buying and selling uh, everything from plastic bag pens to frozen chicken. I had a few employees, and uh, three years later, I felt I had made a little bit of money that should be enough to make kind of a first prototype. So in when I was 2022 20, back in 94, I uh, yeah sat down at my computer, opened up uh, Windows Paint, and started drawing the first sports car <laughs> that I wanted to produce. And and since that day, I never stopped. And, uh, and all still today, that sketch has a lot of kind of features and solutions we still show in our cars today. This kind of wraparound screen, mid-engine, stowable, hardtop, these kind of features we, uh, we have in our cars. So, uh, yeah, so that is a very short story, but basically a car nut since I can remember. wanted to build cars for as long as I can remember. And I, I heard someone told me that whatever impression you have before the age of 11 or 12, kind of forms your personality that is very difficult to change going forward when you get older. It, it kind of becomes part of your DNA almost, or, or at least your, your way of thinking. And, and I had such a big impression from that movie and, 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 and what it led me to do afterwards, that I, I think I had no choice but to, to build a car eventually. So,
0: But, but where else this passion, if you talk about your young experiences, where, where does the passion for these details and engineering excellence, Except for the movie, where is, where else do you think that might have grown? yeah
1: so so I think uh, it, well, first of all, I love details and technical solutions and trying to make make one thing in a car do several functions to save weight so yeah there there are examples in our cars where where we for example use uh, yeah, a little bit like in Formula One flexing body parts that uh, are they may be a, a mud flap, but it can be an aerodynamic device at the same time. We, in in uh, our dashboard construction, uh, hollow carbon fiber uh, piece is also the inside uh, design uh, surfaces, even though it's the structure. So it's mostly based on efficiency. But of course, at this price level, everything also has to be very, very beautiful. But it cannot be on the sacrifice of performance. So it's finding that balance and it's kind of a constant fight. Uh, we, we don't want to put stuff in that doesn't enhance the driving experience. But it still needs to look amazing. So we, we're trying to build in the, the beauty into the technical parts directly. And, and at this price level and, and, and at this competition level, there are no excuses. It just has to be perfect. So we're just trying as hard as we can. Basically,
0: You're talking about price level. Can we remind people what one of your car costs?
1: Yeah. So we're, we're, a starting point is uh, just around $2 million, X, X works, X taxes and so on. And then uh, almost up to four million dollars if you go berserk on specification and uh, uniqueness and so on. So So a couple of
0: options, couple of options, couple of taxes, four million (laughs) dollars.
1: Right, exactly, something like that. So it's it's pretty crazy where this market has gone, and it's it's actually not us driving this so much. It's it's actually the customers asking for more, wanting more, uh, wanting more performance, more lightness, more unique features altogether, and. And it's, it's kind of like anything else. You, you can make something pretty amazing and keeping the cost at a reasonable level. But when you want that ultimate, you kind of go into a wall and, and price and, uh, and also effort just escalates ballistically. I guess it's, if you compare F2 to F1, they kind of look to, to a layman kind of similar on the outside and they run around the track pretty fast, right? But if you look at the effort and the budgets and, and what's goes into it, it's a completely different story. And that's the same thing, I think, between a mega hypercar and a, a supercar. So,
0: I think so- a fair comparison would even be a team like Williams and Mercedes in F1. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. From the outside, it will look exactly the same. Right. And, uh, and from the outside, the performance isn't far off either. But if you go into the details of what it looks like, of the technical finesse of finishing of the performance, then there is a very clear step in the details but, right. but the budget necessary to achieve that clear step of difference is like exponential, as you just said. So even there, I think it's a fair comparison.
1: So, so we often get the question, yeah, at this price level, you must make a fortune in your company. Well, we,
0: we have a, we, we're
1: actually profitable and, and we, we've had to be profitable as we're a standalone company. So we always had a focus on not losing money. And we're, we have a good profitability, but it's not astronomical because, as I said, we put in the money we make, we put into the cars to make them better and more exciting for our customers. And that's how we build value and brand and a company over time. So the reason why they are this expensive is because they, they cost a lot to develop and, and produce and create. And we're not being super inefficient about this. Uh, we're trying to be very efficient and, and frugal. So it's, it's just the name of the game kind of thing. But it is crazy when you, when you can buy a, a normal fun car for, for
0: comparatively mm-hmm. nothing but this is the pinnacle. This is the most extreme you can get, so. Just as an example on the budget, so Williams will be running around 100, 120 million and Mercedes will have a total budget in F1 of 400 million. Um, so it's, you can see Incredible. the extra 300 for that tiny, tiny uptick in performance. Yeah, is, half a uh, second or Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, Christian, I would, love to come, I would love to come back one more time quickly to your floor planks. Um, Because I think it was one of the key lessons in your life, which then encouraged you to start Koenigsegg eventually. And you kind of gave up on the floor planks because people were telling you, hey, what are you doing? That's useless. That's nonsense. It's never going to work. And then someone else did exactly the same and it became a billion dollar company. Can you uh, quickly recap that lesson for us?
1: Yeah. So that was quite a frustrating experience. Of course, I was like 18, 19 when I came up with that invention. And I did it because I was in love with my girlfriend. I wanted to impress her father, basically uh it work.
0: I, no she's your wife
1: now it, she's my wife now exactly and and now he, he's paying a royalty to the other people <laughs> because oh, he that's had no not choice. so good <laughs> <laughs> he had no choice but to do otherwise he couldn't sell any planks <laughs> so but yeah i mean it, it, it was a lesson in in uh, just because people tell you no one is asking for it uh i mean maybe it's complicated or this and that but yeah it was a, a big lesson and, and we can only say i really wanted to prove to myself and the world that if you put your mind to it and really believe in it I think believe is extremely important uh, and work hard you can basically do anything and one of the most difficult things I could ever imagine a part that I loved cars was to create a car and a car brand because when I started in 1994 there were no startups in the car industry at least no one that survived if you looked at everything else it kind of failed. And this was at a time when this wonderful Italian Bugatti was up and it fell down. And I I remember reading Lamborghini almost went bankrupt. And I remember reading in the car magazine, the supercar is dead. I mean, there were no hypercars at the time. And I said to myself, well, you know, so be it. I'm going to do this anyway, because it's the same thing as I said to myself before I read that, that Anything is possible if you really want to do it, and if the market is dead, I have to recreate it, I guess you know, or, or I will build something amazing, and someone will want to buy it i, I don 't care about the market, so this was very much the opposite of a business idea you know when, when you come up a uh, when you learn entrepreneurship in school, you should kind of check, is there demand out there? Do you know what you're doing? Do you have financing? Is, is, is your location a good place? Do you have the track record? And, and on each one of these questions, I could basically only answer no. No, I don't know what I'm really doing. I don't have the background. I don't really have the finances. I don't come from a country where you do this. And there is no market asking for my product. So that sounds like a great business idea. <laughs> you know? But but it didn't matter. It was my dream, and it was what I wanted to do. And apart on top of that, I wanted to prove to myself and the world that absolutely anything is possible if you work hard and put your mind to it. And, and uh, I mean, I've gotten used to being in this situation, but, but when I think about it, it's actually pretty mind-boggling that
0: it worked out. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy and, and lucky to be where I am today, I guess. So if I may throw it in that rumors like online are that now by now you're like a billion dollar company or something, but uh, you don't obviously have to comment that. But but uh, Christian, that somehow there was something missing in that story just now from you, because as an entrepreneur, I mean, no one is just going to free will jump off a bridge as you made it sound there. You know, I mean, um, the, where some like it's an impossible business plan. There's no market. Everybody else is going bankrupt. There must have been something along the way where you say, I'm going to chase my dream. And I really believe in this. What was it? Where did the belief come from? There must be something like, for example, that you saw the other guys do a rubbish job where you think, where you think, uh, guys, if you actually care for your cars and you care for your customers, then you can, you can achieve great things. And you guys, you don't give a shit. So you're doing rubbish. I can do this a lot better. Or is there, is there, there must be something. I mean, come on, you can't just say, Oh, I'm, I'm jumping off the bridge. (laughs) I'm chasing my dreams. Please yeah. give us a little bit more substance on sure, that. Sure, sure, sure. So uh, I wouldn't say that
1: I thought everyone did a rubbish job. Uh, for sure not. But I thought it could be done in a more interesting way. And w- what I saw basically when I looked at Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Porsches and so on, underneath the skin, they did not at all look like Formula One cars. And actually, I, I kind of started at the time when the McLaren F1 right uh, just had come out. And that was the first car I was very fascinated about. Wow, this, this is different than everything else. And it kind of triggered me, damn, that is, that is kind of the direction I want to do. And now someone else is doing it. I, I better get going now because now things are happening. Someone is wanting to disrupt this kind of a bit stale market where everything had gone in a certain footsteps. All the time, so if you look underneath the skin of our first prototypes, we have super long wishbones like on a Formula One car, we have inboard suspension like on a Formula One car. we already have had a partially carbon monocoque like a Formula One car and that was very unusual at the time and until very recently, our cars had uh, engines bolted to the monocoque again, like a formula car, so I, I felt there was this kind of uh, yeah, the cars were not properly engineered like super extreme fast road cars they were more like refined normal cars so that is kind of the niche i saw i guess and and i thought i could kind of create that type of technology uh, and and yeah in the end we could but so yeah i saw that gap and of course i understood also that we don't have a brand in the company we're unknown and, and this and that so we really need to stand out with something technology performance lightweight uh, horsepower per kilo. We, we really need to nail all these metrics in in order to be noticed. And and we, we I guess we nailed it to such a degree where we immediately started taking Guinness records for the world's most powerful production car, the fastest. We did some lap records, uh, braking records, uh, acceleration records, all with a car, which is actually a pretty practical daily car where you can have uh, a decent amount of, of luggage in the front. You can remove your roof and put it in the front. So we tried to not take away that practical side of the car, even though it was a formula car underneath the skin. So, so basically, as raising the bar of combining extreme features and functions beyond what I could see in the marketplace.
0: So, Christian, first of all, I really appreciate your answer there. I think we've really learned something where, where you say, yes, the supercar market is falling apart, But those guys are doing, in my words now, they're doing a rubbish job because they don't care. And under the skin, it's just, it's rubbish. I mean, this can be done so much better. Uh, Um, So this is really powerful. And and thank you for that, uh, for that insight. And you made it happen. So, uh, so. One uh, way or the other, uh, we're here. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But before making it happen, I mean, okay, now you have this dream but how the hell do you raise the money to to reach out for this dream? I mean, it took you two years to build the first prototype, then another six years to even just sell the first car. How the hell... Do you manage to navigate all that? I mean, that uh, is a
1: very good question. So the first eight years, we didn't have any income. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a good. That doesn't sound like a good idea. It was, it was absolutely useless business from that point of view. So yeah, I made a little bit of money in my first business. That lasted probably eight months of the prototype building. Uh, I got a small grant. I, I visited the Swedish National Board for Technical Development. And I, I booked a meeting and met this ladies in her early 60s. And I said, OK, maybe she's not so car interested. I don't know. Maybe she is. Who knows? And then I showed pictures of, of what I wanted to do. I said, oh, that is a very beautiful car. Yeah, this will be interesting to support. I said, like, well, hey, <laughs> great. So they told me that if I uh, if I would move out into an area of kind of a little bit higher unemployment, I could borrow like 200,000 euros. So I said, okay, I don't care. I I live in Stockholm, but I said, I'll I'll go anywhere. I'm going to build my car. So I moved out into a small little town out in the forest. I could choose up very far north, kind of at the polar circle, or a little bit south out in the forest. And then I found this town where they stamp Volvo uh, sheet metal parts. So there was some automotive industry there, and I could borrow my 200,000 euro. So I said, I'll go there. And I I was promised I could eventually rent something like 1,500 square meter size building, but uh, it wasn't available in the beginning, so I had to rent 400 square meters. So I went there, and and within a year or so, it was all cramped and filled up, and uh, and of course, I ran out of that money as well. And at that time, my, my father is kind of a serial entrepreneur. He's retired now; he's over eight years old. But but uh, he's, he's a serial entrepreneur, and he had sold off a partnership in a company, and and uh, yeah, we had never worked together. And and he he's a horseman. He used to spend a lot of time with my two sisters in the kind of uh, po- pony show jumping stuff and like that. So we, we were not uh, so much together as when I was a young boy. So he said, it would be fun to do something together. And I said, yeah, well, you know, I'm totally broke here and I'm halfway through my first prototype. Yeah, maybe I can give you kind of a little bridge loan and help you out a little bit. So he actually came down and lived in my my uh, one uh, room apartment in uh, this town of Ålöström. He lived on a bunk bed in, in my hallway and what was supposed to be like uh, two, three months became like two and a half years or something and uh, the bridge loan became a little bit, bit bigger so we kind of uh, yeah what he had gained from 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 his uh, yeah uh, proceed was chewed up to a certain degree and then we got in some investors eventually some swedish it was this was the end of the uh, yeah before the 2000s we had this IT boom in sweden well in the whole world i guess but especially in sweden was a very big thing and 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 some people had gotten quite wealthy on going public with these uh, computer companies. And, and we're looking for something tangible, something they could touch, not only this kind of ones and zeros up in the air. So we got a few investors from, from that sector and the and guy uh, dealing with groceries. So that made it possible for us to go into production in 2002. And uh, since 2002, I think overall, we have had three or four years where we have not been profitable and we've been able to stay profitable at super low volumes originally. Because I hardly took any salary the, the five first years. I made my money to live on from kind of holding seminars and how I'm going to build my car. It was kind of an interesting ingredient in a, in a bigger picture of a seminar, this crazy guy wanting to build his own car. So I could get some money off of that. And then I met some, uh, some uh, interesting people during those tours, which had startups and so on. So the little money I made on that, I put in their startups and then it ten doubled from that and I could live off of that a little bit. So that's kind of how I went by in the beginning until it started floating more properly and and we've had a, a few investors over the years coming in and i would say uh coming in and out and and i would say most of them have done a decent money to to be part of this journey so that's been good as well and yeah that's about it
0: <laughs> so cool to, to hear how how it became such a father-son bond as well and and he then supported you in this project i can relate to that of course because my sure. father played a big, big role sure. in my in my career, especially in the early in the early stage. Not so much in the end, yeah. but in the and, early stage. And of, stage course, and of
1: course, since he did that, I, I felt a huge responsibility as well on top of my own dream. You know, he 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 committed as well, so I f- felt a huge responsibility to make sure uh, it works from that perspective as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. And can you remember the one most difficult or darkest moment in that whole build-up where you are like, oh shit, maybe tomorrow we're gonna have to shut the doors and. And is there like one example where we can uh, be inspired, like how you managed to fight through it?
1: I I would say it was more like 50 times (laughs) (laughs) during those first, let's say, well, during the development years before we got any finance. It was always like hand to mouth. And I I had friends, you know, coming down to help. I paid them with like spaghetti bolognese and, and, and a roof over their head. They helped out for a few months until they had to get work. Uh, it was it was very much shoestring uh, in every aspect, but not allowing that to compromise the result. I mean, we set the bar super high because otherwise there was no reason to do it. But but uh, we kind of had to pitch in all kind of for free to make it work. And suppliers that could get uh, you know posters or something. Web pages didn't really exist so much back then, but they could get posters or something on their web page, and and we could show off their parts or something. You know, just find ways of paying with other things than money. And not taking out a salary at all is a huge a tax saving. <laughs> you don't have to pay tax and not, not getting any money. So that, that's a huge, huge cost saving. So so it, it, it goes with a the, with the theme really of anything is possible if you put your mind to it. And I would also add maybe if you're willing to basically sacrifice anything normal about life. And And my philosophy was always, yeah, you know, In the end we're all dead anyway so if i tried really really hard working my ass off to try something work i will be dead in the end anyways there's kind of no upside or i can sit on a park bench and look at the birds all life and 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 do nothing and i will be as dead in the end anyway there is no loss to that either so i have actually nothing to lose to work my ass off it doesn't cost anything in the end so i like cars so why why not do it you know I, i don't care if it's an unconventional lifestyle now it's a little bit more comfortable, <laughs> but uh, but that was kind of the outset. And when you have that mindset, you're kind of unstoppable because you, you don't even need money. I always said to my wife to be, and now my wife, that I mean, the worst thing that can happen we'll live in a tent in the forest. I mean, it's not so bad. We'll figure it out, you know. And and fortunately, we didn't have to do that. But yeah, it's it, it's kind of a bulletproof uh, way of, of operating, I think. And, and uh, yes, yeah, way- so to go back to your question, um, I think. I don't know how many times, but maybe 50 times, you know, we were two weeks away. We have, maybe we had 10 employees, maybe we had 20 employees. We're like two weeks away. We don't have the money to pay the salary. And somehow, magically, some customer arrives or something, something that we, we managed to deliver a car, and we always managed to pay. Over, over 20 years, I think we were late with salaries. One time, two days. That's it. But we, we were out of money 50 times. So that is kind of a miracle. I don't really understand how that happened, but uh, it's like you're in the, in the gist of things and solving it from time to time. But, but the last, I would say, 15 years have been a little bit easier.
0: But that, I think, is also a common trait among the very successful, that luck always comes at some points, but they go looking for it. Right. So you, you are welcoming luck with open arms at all times. By what your passion. You, buy exactly. a lot of passion
1: you need to grab it when, it, when, you, when you see it exactly that's exactly so
0: that's a that's a common trait which we are, you always find in all the big all the successful stories and and I want to repeat one other thing that you just touched on, which is also a very successful uh, trait it's the ability to make the worst case scenario not look that bad, like you were talking about your tent living in a tent scenario and actually saying, "You know what if that's the worst case, then so what that's, that's <laughs> right. fine, I think we'll be able to enjoy that too and that <laughs> That uh, reduces your fear of failure, right? You know, right. Uh, if you're able to, if you're able to extract whatever small positives there are in the worst case scenario, it really reduces the fear of failure. And it's something that I worked on a lot in my F1 career as well, because fear of failure was a huge problem for me. I mean, it was a huge ballast for me all the time. I was so scared of uh, of failing, and it still remained even at the end that I was scared of failing. But with with uh, working on this worst case plan B, pulling out the positives. Um, it reduced the fear of failure, so it was really it's for important. me a, a key ingredient as well. It's important, and now I mean now the company
1: is in a I would say very comfortable situation, and we're growing nicely and so on. And uh, but we are starting some some projects where we're again putting like yeah we're putting things a little bit on the edge because again that's what you're supposed to do when it, when you have a platform. But I, I don't I don't think we should just sit and be comfortable where we are. And I guess that's also why we did the, the Rigiera, which no one asked for this completely crazy way of propelling a car, a unique way. And and, and I hope one day you can experience it. Uh, it's just something completely different. And our customers were not asking for a, a, a hyper mega car, which you don't shift. I mean, shifting is fun. I love shifting in the yes, you shift, but the experience of the Rigiera, of this instant massive surge of roaring electrified torque is so addictive. And I, I have people getting into the car say, oh, yeah, but you know, I like to shift. I know I also like to shift, but you have a go, you know. And then it blasts around it and, and it came back. So I was, I was this and that and that and that? Yeah, so what about shifting? You know, I didn't even think about that. And that was the whole idea about that car. And it was pretty much a, a, a crazy bet because we did something no one asked for at all. And it turned out amazing. With a couple of records in the baggage and this and that, but but the feel of driving this car is just something completely different. And I, I guess you should ask our, our customers and not me. But but yeah, you yeah. If one day you can experience, I would love to show you. So let, <laughs> let's then, just course, repeat.
0: Let's just repeat those words for some goosebumps for the listeners and watchers. So instant roaring, massive electrified torque. That's it. <laughs> that sounds kind of very myself. good. <laughs> that sounds like Koenigsegg in a nutshell.
1: <laughs> And then we took that, you know, to the Jamira where we're again kind of twisting the minds a little bit, a 3-cylinder mega car with four seats. Again, something no one asked for, but yeah, it's I'm super excited by that project. It's a it's a dream come true. It's something I I wanted to work on for 10 years and finally we were allowed and able to do it. So, uh something a little bit different coming up.
0: Yeah, I wanted to touch on the Jamira a little bit later again also because of your passion for sustainability which we share. But but if it's okay, I just want to stick with where we are for now with um, with you saying how you're putting the company on the line again now um, and not staying in this comfortable zone, but pushing into the difficulty and into the unknowns. And I think that's also such an important uh, lesson for everybody that it's in discomfort that you grow, you grow as individuals, you grow as companies and you grow as in your well-being also because comfort just becomes boring and, and you just became, uh, I mean, you stagnate or whatever and you right. just stop yeah. there. So yes. as humans, it's so important to keep pushing and have courage to keep pushing into discomfort because that's yeah. where you're you're going to be proud of yourself, Absolutely. your whole team is going to be proud, you're going to be a proud company.
1: I, I would say comfort, and just uh, yes, don't on me now, comfort kind of makes you dumb <laughs> because <laughs> okay. it turns off your, your sensors and, 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 and you, you get blunt you know it's, it's it's not sharp anymore and and also this point uh, you, you were on to so in in the company when I talk to the guys and girls I work with they're so yeah but this is so tough and why are we doing this and yeah well you have something to tell your grandchildren about I mean I think that is the apart from getting remuneration and, and, and learning stuff and so on to me it's uh, oh well of course we want to push the, the the environmental envelope in this industry and potentially maybe later on in other industries there's also something to tell your grandchildren about you know, it's, we did this in, in small Engelholm in Sweden, basically in a potato field in nowhere. And we just put the steak down. and This is what we're going to do. And we did it. And, and that is just a fun story to tell your grandchildren
0: about, I think. And um, speaking about grandchildren and inspiration, you're, you're inspired by Elon and Richard. Uh, Richard Branson, Elon Musk, I believe. Um, yeah. The, what for, what the, is like, can you pinpoint one thing where you've been like, okay, this, that's magical. And I want to be like that. Or is, is there one example from one of the two of them?
1: Yeah, so I would put it like this. I didn't didn't know so much about Elon Musk when he was in PayPal. But I always kind of said to, within our group of people we're working with, I think it's easier to build a rocket than to do what we're doing. Because you don't need, people don't care so much about what it looks like. There is no ergonomics to compare with other rocket ships so much that you have to compete with. you you don't have to crash test them okay there are other challenges there of course but i always said you know you can go probably buy an old this was in the 90s when the when the iron curtain had fallen so i said you can probably go and buy like an old rocket in russia hack it with a modern laptop i mean they flew to the moon with them with with the the power of 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 a pocket calculator so like a a 90s laptop an old rocket you can probably hijack that thing and, and and make your own rocket fly and you know pretty easily and then i suddenly read this about this guy in in yeah early two thousand, so he sold this PayPal thing that everyone knew about, and he's going to build rockets. Holy shit! And he's probably going to do a Russian and buy one first, but that didn't work out. So I got really fascinated when I, when I read that because it resonated with, with with my way of thinking, and and I I clearly liked. That. I mean, he didn't take his billions and and relax and get comfortable. He was going to take his PayPal money and build rockets. So. Amazing yeah that 's what you need to do, you know, so I, I followed him ever since, and he he never disappointed in in the entertainment <laughs> throughout the years and and then suddenly, after that, he started building cars, which made it even more interesting so yeah and and, and actually, uh, talking about that, as i said, I, I bought some some shares in, when i couldn 't have a really salary, yeah, so I bought the Tesla shares the day after the iPO and never looked back on that one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: what was the what was the share price?
1: So I think it was introduced at like uh, twenty one or twenty two, and it, and it jumped up and down a little bit. So I think I got uh, first I got in at thirty two, then on seventeen because it dipped, and and now it's the equivalent of I don't know three thousand or something.
0: Oh my was, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and you've kept your shares the whole I journey. Kept them.
1: Yeah, I've kept them. <laughs> oh my! Because I was goodness. so fascinated. You know, this guy—he's onto something here, and he has the this kind of mindset I like. So
0: that's amazing! What a great story. It wasn't—it
1: was only a small amount, but even a small amount, you know, becomes big with that kind of uh, development. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, even- but yeah, so very fascinated. Uh, love the way of thinking. Uh, Richard Branson, I think, is an amazing entrepreneur, jumping from different fields. You know, from from music making and two rocket ships. I mean, it's absolutely wild, right? I, I don't know, hotels and whatever, uh, cruise ships. But what I'm mostly fascinated by, by him, his, his lack of fear for his own life. I mean, these crazy balloon rides and boat rides and almost every time certain death. And then he keeps on going again and sort of expecting to survive somehow, even though you should expect to die. And, and, and that is kind of taking the way I'm thinking even a step further It's like, I don't even know how to kind of process it, but, but uh, so I, I kind of love that total wild fearlessness of, of, I guess, maybe in business, but especially in, in his own adventures in combination with that. So I think it's a very fascinating profile.
0: So probably what you all share, and I think you're, you're all one step ahead of me on that, is really having a very small amount only of fear of failure. And, uh, and for the worst case scenario, in the case of Richard Branson dying, in the case of Elon Musk, he invested all of his 250 million from PayPal back into SpaceX and Tesla. So he couldn't afford to pay an apartment anymore for himself. Exactly. Like, I mean, how nuts is that? You just be. Like, it's just, just amazing. You just made mind, 250 just million. You have it on your bank account. You're good for life, for a beautiful exactly. life. And you put every cent back into the most crazy things. Like, yeah. you must be a bit. <laughs> it's beautiful. Be bit it's beautiful. It's just. Yeah, beautiful. yeah. Okay. Certainly. <laughs> but uh, um, then speaking of Elon Musk. He announces the Tesla Roadster performance. And uh, this kind of hits you and you're like, oh, shit, what's going on here? Uh, yeah, he, can you tell us that know, moment? He and how to you- kick,
1: yeah, he knows how to kick the teeth in. He exactly. <laughs> He's going to see them over there. I'm going to mess with those guys, you know. And, and, and it, it is... It, you know the most annoying thing about that was we we were we were doing the Jamira and we were happy with cover. I mean, two point three seconds. That just makes you who needs to go faster and, and who can go faster than that two hundred. And then like a few weeks later, boom! This uh, road series goes at one point nine. That's not good. Uh, and then and then, we, and then we start calculating, and in like three four days, hey, we can do that. We can do it even even faster than that. And that annoyed me because it meant we were actually not fully uh, engaged in a way right we did not push as hard as we could we were getting comfortable ah. so he he is making yeah people uncomfortable which is good he's pushing things forward i mean little koenigsegg is not an issue but the whole car industry i mean he really really kicked the teeth in into the the big old hundred year old car companies that were way way too comfortable i mean they were talking about a comfort zone Beyond anything else. I mean, no industry is allowed to be that old and that comfortable. It's, it just needs a disruptor, for sure.
0: That's an interesting statement. So, of course, you have so many world records, like, for example, the first one to one power to weight ratio, Agera RS, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it? Or, yeah, right? The, the so one to one was, we'll yeah,
1: uh, one horsepower per kilo. Or exactly. One.
0: So it was 1,350 kilos and 1,350 horsepowers, more or less. Yeah, uh, so that, that was one of the most impressive uh, world records. But so tell me about this process now. Re- Tesla comes out 1.9. What do you do then in the company? You get together, you huddle, huddle together with the yeah, brightest I mean, we, heads, or we, 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 what's we the met process? In
1: the, kind of in the, in the coffee room and, and started thinking and bringing up the laptops and crunching numbers. And, and, and three, four day- days later, we figured out with our Hydra Coupe drive and direct drive system, uh, tweaking the inverters a little bit, a gear ratio, increasing RPM of electrical motors, small things that we checked we could do, and then suddenly, boom, it was possible. So and I, 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 and I think, yeah, I mean, the jamira is, of course, a much more expensive car uh, than, than a Roadster. And, and here it really, again, comes into that. How can something be so much more expensive with something that, on paper, is kind of similar again? So with the jamira it's actually doing what a small, okay, the, the Roadster is kind of, Four-seater-ish, uh, you can maybe squeeze in in the back, like on a Porsche 911 kind of thing. But the Jamira is a full, full family car with the shape and the look and being a mid-engine car. It's actually mid-engine with, with, with probably 500 kilos less of weight than the Roadster. With a carbon fiber monocoque, with a carbon fiber body, with carbon fiber wheels. So you have this amazing space inside, four carry-on luggages at the same time. 500 kilos less weight than the Roadster, but much bigger, and, and the same range. So you, you can just imagine around a track or something like that, what 500 kilos will do. And then you're actually in, in a completely different environment than a small sports car. So And the volume we build these cars in are, of course, much, much smaller than the Roadster. And the level of bespokeness, the, the, how you can make the car unique, is much, much higher. So there you, you, you again hit the wall of cost, but for, for the connoisseur, who want something beyond extreme and unique, the Jamira is for them. And for anyone who just yes, want a great bang for the buck and have a lot of fun and a great car, the Roadster is for them. And I guess many will actually buy both if you have the opportunity because they're both exciting in their own right.
0: Yeah. Um, but in, in these magical creation moments, I've heard that the biggest bang comes when you pull out your iPad and you go on Microsoft Paint. Is that correct?
1: Uh, yeah. So I'm not an engineer. I'm, I'm, I'm nothing. You know, I'm just... Crazy entrepreneur, I guess. Uh, I'm very much into the technical details. I'm very much into physics. I love physics in general, and and I try to everything we do kind of with Koenigsegg. And from my perspective, it's always from a physical point of view. What can materials do? How can how can we go to the maximum point of loading of structures and stuff like that? Uh, Aerodynamics, aerodynamics with ergonomics, with packaging, with safety. This is kind of when things gel together, when it's beyond engineering and it's more like emotional and fluid. And and that is where I come into the picture. And what I do is I I walk around our our engineering and design landscape and I kind of look at people's computer screens. Oh, can you screen dump that for me? And then they send screen dumps to me. And then I go into paint and I draw a lot of arrows and curves and things on their screen dumps. And what do you think about this? And I send it back. That's how I work in engineering. So paint is paint and email.
0: Those are my two tools. And what was the most... What was the biggest Microsoft Paint moment in the history of Koenigsegg? I, I guess it must have been the first uh, sketch of that yellow roadster
1: uh, <laughs> I, I did back in 1994. But I, I probably do like three or four paint sessions a day. Uh, so uh, some are more important than others. Maybe the layout of the direct drive uh, uh, powertrain or, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, so...
0: And um, so now you've got the Jamera out, which I also love from the point of view that you as a company are positioning yourself more and more strongly in the field of sustainability, which is what I'm on. I'm fully focused as an entrepreneur on sustainability. And so it's been really cool to see what you're doing with the Jamera already, with the biofuels. Can you explain that in uh, yeah, what you've
1: done I, there? I would love to. So to me, I've been extremely concerned about the environment and the human um, impact on earth and actually one of the reasons why i wanted to become an entrepreneur so early was that i always believed that when i'm older when i've grown up the world has gone to hell it's it's gone so uh, if i want to do something want to have an impact i better start early because there will be nothing left when i'm old so that's kind of a pessimistic approach but again that drove me to do stuff because I wouldn't want to miss the opportunity to impact and have an exciting life before it's too late. But that also kept in the back of my mind the environmental aspect, which was one of the critical scenarios I saw in front of me. Because already when I was a kid, there was talk about this, uh, not to the level of today, but it's always been bubbling in the background. So, I mean, there was nothing, No, again, no customer asked for it. The industry was not at all up to it. So, But in 2007, we presented the world's first environmentally conscious production sports car of any volume or size with the CCXR, the flower power CCXR, where we converted the car so it could run flex fuel on E85 or E100 ethanol. And ethanol can be produced in, in shitty ways or in good ways. It's like electricity in a way. You, c- you can have a coal-powered electric car or you can have a solar-powered electric car. The same thing with ethanol. To have the good stuff, it's difficult to d- to produce In high volumes today, but there are more and more renewable liquid fuels coming into play, even solar fuels where you can convert solar energy into liquid fuels like butanol and so on through algaes. And what's interesting, for example, if you're in the desert, you can make these huge algae plants, production plants, and produce ethanol or or methanol or butanol. And then you can transport those in trucks running on that uh, fuel to places of need, for example, in Europe. You can't do that with electricity from from the desert in, in Africa because you're, the, the power lines just loses too much. So you can take the sun, package it into liquid and, and place it somewhere else. Of course, you don't have the same energy efficiency, but you have to remember the energy came from the sun. And if you transport it with a liquid from the sun, it doesn't matter so much if it's efficient or not, because you just capture the energy of the sun from the beginning that would have been wasted in the desert otherwise. So we are kind of working heavily with electrification. We're developing our own e-motors, our own inverters, our own battery packs to the most extreme level that we've seen. But we're also working with refining the, the combustion engine for renewable fuels. And the reason for that is with sports cars especially, weight is an issue. And if you have a big battery pack, they're very, very heavy. And But we also see it from a different perspective because we can use this combustion renewable fuel combustion engine technology For aspects which are not good for electrification yet. For example, marine use, aeroplane, aerospace use, and to make sports cars lighter with the hybridization running on electricity and renewable fuels, and thereby also not overloading the cell production, which is going to be a scarcity for the next uh, five to 10 years. There's going to be a much bigger need for cells than is going to be produced even though there are so many gigafactories of battery cells coming up there's no way they can keep up with demand and even though there's going to be a huge influx of electric cars even though they're restricted by battery cells for the time being those cars will pile up at all the charge stations so because the infrastructure will not be fast enough compared to the how how fast the cars can be built even though they're restricted by cells so we see it's better for the environment that we help also on the side of combustion to make that renewable, that shrinking market that helps uh, mobility and that would otherwise have to be kind of uh, fossil fuel based. We want to make sure that uh, that is renewable based with engines that consume very little so the alcohols, the, the, the good alcohols last longer and we mix that with hybridization to make it last even longer. And eventually, of course, electrification will completely take over when there is no cell shortage and when the battery packs become lighter, cheaper and smaller and so on and so on. But for the next five to 10 years, we can help the environment of doing the not so obvious thing of also developing combustion engines for renewable fuel. So that's why we did the tiny friendly giant. And that's why we did the Jamira to be allowed to create that engine where we can put it in also marine use also small airplanes running on renewable alcohols instead of diesel or uh, like heavily leaded av gas fuels, combining it with electrification or not. And, and, and the final word on this is probably, I mean, we produce so few sports cars that we could almost put any kind of fuel into them and they wouldn't have a huge environmental impact. But even with these kind of low volumes, we can create technology, we can have a bigger impact where we can spin it out to other things, as I said. But also our customers, they want to feel good about what they drive and what they buy. And you actually don't need a sports car. You can you can drive a completely normal car to get from A to B. You buy a sports car for emotional reasons and to experience performance and so on. And then you want to experience that with as little bad consciousness as possible. So therefore, it's also important from that perspective as a competitive advantage. Yeah, sorry for rambling on.
0: No, 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 no. But uh, I, I really appreciate because even for the hypercar market, the time is now to become conscious of this, of this problem. So it's really awesome how you're how you're tackling that. And not only uh, you're talking about combustion engines, I mean, if we think about emerging markets, until the electrification penetrates the mobility there, it's going to be decades. So it definitely makes a lot of sense to come up with this biofuel or synthetic fuel solution to bridge the time uh, until we get the full-blown electrification. So it makes a lot of sense. I'm a startup investor. I would really appreciate if you could share some notes of all, the, all that you've seen with me after the talk. Uh, I would really appreciate like some of the leading startups or ideas or whatever. I would find that very, very interesting.
1: Yeah. And the final word, I think, of this is that at least personally, I don't mind a sports car with a roar as long as it's kind of environmentally conscious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh I yeah, maybe I'm a dying breed in that. I don't know.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I mean no. Uh, and well, a roar is still uh, still adds to the adds to the goosebumps, huh? That's the right. way it is. So right. No, oh, no, I can, I can relate to that definitely. So to finish off, then I would like to hear from you your vision of the hypercar of the future. What is the, what is the hypercar going to look like? In should we take a seven year horizon?
1: Yeah. So I think performance has been a very much a driving uh, factor in, in the sports car industry and in the hypercar industry, and I think that is becoming more ubiquitous in the sense of you can get performance out of a quite normal car today. and maybe, maybe maybe not to the same level, but very, very close. So of course, we're going to stay ahead of the game in performance, but, but I don't think that's enough. So it's really about getting as pure as possible with the mission of kind of tantalizing the emotions to, to make it as emotional as possible, which is maximum performance, but also kind of clarity of thought and unique amazing solutions to make the car as light as possible as stiff as safe as beautiful having the maximum performance as well so it, it's offering what you cannot get from a normal car basically and that has to do with with 3d printed bionic structures lattice work inside that flowing aero through uh, uh, the chassis structures uh, using carbon fiber more for uh, in unique ways for suspension arms, uh, integrating uh, seats in, in chassis structures, just removing parts. We have a kind of a mantra here at König's The car is not allowed to consist of parts. No parts are allowed at all. No brackets, no parts, no nothing. It's a bit difficult to achieve that goal to 100%, but that is kind of the objective. Maximum performance, maximum emotional experience, no parts. So I think with that mindset, what will come out is very unique. And, and, and it's not going to look like a normal car. It's not going to feel like a normal car. It's going to motivate its stratospheric price and stratospheric uh, low volume, whatever it is, you know. So, yeah, that's kind of how I see it. In the end, you're
0: selling the dream for uh, like yeah, many of us. Uh,
1: selling kind of the impossible, the the, the next level
0: of, of beyond what you thought was possible. It sounded like science fiction. So that's a great that's a great place to end our conversation. And thank you so much, Christian. It was very, very inspiring, very interesting. And I would love to get the opportunity to try one of your cars one day. I haven't tried it yet. So at some point, it would be awesome if the opportunity arises. Watch this space. I mean, maybe if Christian, you're welcoming to that, that would be cool. Um, yeah, so yeah. You yeah. Me I, you mean, I
1: mean, uh, you, you're welcome to Engelon anytime. We have our own little test track here. Uh, maybe maybe I can pop down with a car to Monaco. <laughs> I, I, I took a trip uh, last summer with my son to Italy with the Regera. Maybe I can drive past monaco or something we can have some fun but for sure yeah hope hope we can meet up in this post covid times and, and and have some car fun absolutely that would be awesome with uh,
0: with biofuel <laughs> or
1: yeah <laughs> electrified biofuel
0: with <laughs> electric <laughs> thank you very much christian yeah. bye bye nice talking to you see, thank you so much. see you one day bye 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 <laughs>